Angela, during Canberra's five minutes of lockdown, what were some of the things you missed the most about normal life? <laughs> yeah, our lockdown was nowhere near as long as yours, Jeffrey. But I tell you what, I was very excited to wave the kids off at the end of that period. <laughs> I definitely missed kid-free time. I think working without listening to Baby Shark in the background on high repeat is something I will never take for granted <laughs> again. What else did I miss? I missed interacting with people while not wearing sweatpants, I think, was probably another key thing. And what about you, Jeffrey? You're just emerging from lockdown. What did you miss? Oh, my God, it's definitely not having a haircut for so long. I was a monster, <laughs> as you could probably see on our daily Zooms. One of the things, though, that I didn't expect I'd miss, because I kind of forgot it yet existed, was the smell and the sights and the sounds of Melbourne's cafe and restaurant culture. But anyway, we've got a podcast to do. So welcome to the Source Pod, everyone. Hi, I'm Jeffrey Smart, director and co-founder of The Ligon Group. And I'm Angela Lehman, an education analyst with The Ligon Group. The Ligon Group is a specialist international education consultancy. We're based in Melbourne and, of course, Canberra. And we exist really to help our clients across Australia and, in fact, around the world to solve some of the big strategic challenges and opportunities they're presented with in all aspects of international education, whether it's transnational education, student mobility, research collaboration, organisational optimization marketing and recruitment. Yeah, we get to dabble in all the fun things to do with international education. And this podcast, The Source Pod, comes out of a newsletter that we've been producing in this pandemic era to really give back um, some of our insight and analysis in international education to talk about what's really going on and what we think is important for professionals in the sector in Australia to understand about the global and domestic landscape. And this episode is particularly important with regards to that. In this episode, we're going to be talking about sentiment. We're talking about what sentiment means and what it means for people who have been planning um, pilot re-entry programs and planning generally for the reopening of the country for international education. To have a thriving international education sector, you need so many parts of the community to be with you. Communities in general, so people out there beyond education need to understand the benefits that international education brings. And then, of course, there's the on-campus sentiment. What do you reckon about that, Angela? That's right. I'd like to also have a quick chat about this concept of social licence and this phrase that we hear across the sector all the time this year and have a think about what it actually means. And I think the first time we started hearing that phrase was with regards to the mining industries and the extractive industries back like 20 years ago when these kind of corporations were starting to think, I think we need to, to get on top of our, our public image. And it's interesting now that this phrase is now being used for a sector such as international education. But it is a tough one because what we're talking about is something that's quite intangible. We're talking about um, kind of permission, I guess, from our communities or the people around us for our industry itself. So it's something that's based on personal relationships and on trust. And these are things that are, are difficult and hard to win, maybe, but quite easy to lose, as maybe we're seeing a little bit this year. 
Yeah, absolutely. And sentiment can swing in both directions depending on the size of the international student cohort in the country at a given time. Lots of international students' sentiment can be up in arms against international students because they're congesting everything, which is not true, by the way. Um, But then this concept of absence that we're exploring in this episode brings home the impact of international students and the fact that they're not here in the same numbers in a very different kind of way and turns sentiment in a different direction. So let's talk about sentiment and we'll start with sentiment on our campuses and our universities. This year I think has thrown up a few opportunities in a way for us to to really think about social licence because we've had the absence of international students um, and this absence has made it really visible that the broader contribution that students do make outside of university incomes. One of the places where this absence has been really felt is on university campuses and in classrooms. And we spoke to people about this who have been working on the front line, bringing university students back in. Yeah, and I think it's really important because we acknowledge this all of the time, that although international students are both absent and slightly invisible, there are actually 600,000 or so international students studying with us, living amongst us, going through the pandemic with us. And that's been really tough for all of them. But communities and university communities have really wrapped their arms around international students to find new ways of supporting them. But we've missed a couple of really important intakes in 2020 of new commencing students. And of course, we have a whole lot of our current international students stranded offshore. So we spoke to Gabrielle Rowland at the University of South Australia, who, as you know, if you've been listening to the podcast for the last couple of episodes, University of South Australia has a pilot program up and running with the rest of the state of South Australia. And we asked Gabrielle if she could talk to us about what the sentiment was like within the university community towards this concept of a pilot program getting up and running. And this is what she told us. So I think amongst the wider university community, it's a really positive thing because the international students are part of this community. These are students who've been here, been in Adelaide for a couple of years, most of them. They've got you know classmates who are here who they've gone through programs together with. And I think it's really, it's, a, it's the sign of the door being opened. I, I think that's what it is as well. So within the university community, very positive. I mean, they've been hearing about it for a long time until it, and finally it's like we all have to click into gear because there's a lot of different parts of the university that are involved in this. So from our, you know, student engagement unit and the counselling support, even from finance who's been dealing with the uh, sort of procurement side of the, you know, the practical side of, of that as well. So very positive. For my team, it's a complete shot in the arm for us. I mean, This has been a hard year for international officers, as you would well know. To some degree, this year has presented an opportunity for the sector to raise the issue of this broader contribution of international students. And I think Gabrielle made that really clear, that there is this broader contribution on campuses and to the dynamism of campuses too. John Maloney from Deakin University describes the role of international students as key to the internationalisation of classrooms and campuses and of communities. This is what he told us. So like many Australian universities, one in four students at Deakin now, and we're a large university, we're over 60,000, approaching 70,000 students, but one in four of our students is an international student. So they're very much a part of our community. They're, they're right at the core. They're, they're part of the fabric of the university, you know, and it continues even though we're not welcoming students because of the closed border at the moment. But we've still got over 20% of the cohort is international. 
And so uh, the possibility of that slowing down and becoming a lesser percentage is concerning to our academic and administrative staff. I mean, international students are a really important part of our community. So we want to make sure that that continues, that we're able to, whenever the conditions are right and in a very COVID-safe way, that we are able to bring those students back. And hopefully we're not in a situation, as I say, you know, I was thinking about it earlier today, just the contribution that those students to make to everything that we do. So, you know, the internationalisation of the curriculum, the internationalisation of the classroom and just the general community, the university community, and then where our campuses operate from and the students living in those communities and the contribution that they make there. So we uh, look forward to that continuing because it's a really important element of um, Deakin. John is making a really valuable point here, I think, that universities today all around the world are places that are considered international. Part of what they strive to do is to teach students about being global, about other ways of thinking and acting, and international students add real value to curriculums and classrooms that have been noticeably absent this year. And like others, Sarah Todd spoke about the important challenge of keeping up a sense of internationalisation on campus, connecting domestic and international students with each other, all the while keeping domestic student interest in global mobility strong, despite the fact that physical education abroad opportunities are curtailed. It's, It's a really interesting and important discussion. This is what Sarah told us. Now for students who are back on campus, we're running face-to-face activities. But those domestic students, um, many of them talk about how they're missing, not just the friends they've made who are currently at home and voluntarily, but also how they're missing the vibrancy on campus and in their classes and things. I've also been meeting with the heads of different student associations and different groups as well. I think, um, like staff, actually, you'll get those who will say, well, the university should be more focused on domestic students. Um, And then you'll get others who, domestic students or otherwise, really recognise the huge contribution that international students make. Similarly, we've obviously, like all universities, had to shut down our outbound mobility programmes. And so that's led to other discussions around we don't have international as many international students physically in the classroom or on campus, uh, nor can we send our students out. So how do we ensure that that cohort going through with us at the moment still do meet those graduate attributes and outcomes around being global citizens and how do we engage them in internationalised versions of the curriculum and internationalised experiences across our campuses as well. We're shutting down internationalisation from all all corners, really. So um, I think it would be very sad if the longer this goes on, we will have students who will go through maybe without an international student sitting next to them in class or at the cafe, and nor will they be talking about where they can go overseas either. So, you know, we've moved to virtual mobility. It's quite a hard sell with a lot of students. They don't really know what it might involve. They don't know why they'd pay for it. So that's an interesting discussion, but there we're missing that informal internationalisation that occurs in an integrated campus environment as well. 
Having said that, I think through virtual teaching and learning and breakout rooms and everything like that, you know, students are still connecting virtually around the world. So in some ways, uh, maybe they've ended up in groups with students from all around the world that they may not have physically walked themselves over in the classroom and put themselves into those groups. So um, there could be some students who, who have had more, ironically, more of a direct connection with an international student. Yeah, it's really heartening to me as somebody who really supports outbound student mobility or education abroad opportunities that universities are innovating and finding ways to keep interest up amongst domestic students because really education abroad assists in the process of turning domestic students into global citizens. We've heard about sentiment around international students on campuses and within international offices. We've heard about the sentiment within universities generally. And we've heard that an absence of international students has really given an impetus to recognise the role they play in education and dynamism in university life. So we're now going to turn to talking about community sentiment. So let's step off campus for a moment. Yeah, step out into the suburbs and communities around our our universities, absolutely. So what has been the feeling on the ground about how communities are reacting to these moves to bring international students back in? And in the case of pilots, this is kind of before the general opening of borders. So it's been a really delicate one. It's been definitely front of mind to most of the people we have spoken to. This is what Gabrielle Rowland, who's been front and centre of the South Australian pilot, had to say about community sentiment. I think it's a mixed bag. It's changing as the conditions are changing for borders opening domestically as well. So when when this first hit the media that it had been approved, I I know it was probably about six weeks ago, I guess, and didn't come from the universities that had been approved, but it, it got into the media. And um, we were a bit horrified at some of the, the community sentiment, which when you dug down into it was really about, well, you know, I can't visit my family in X. Why are we letting students in here? And uh, I think because the situation's changing to that, and also we've now got increased capacity to return Australian citizens in, I think that's just easing up a bit as well. But look, it's part of the whole issue around international education. I think it's well understood by those who work within it, not so well understood externally. So it is part of that larger story that we need to tell. Yeah, it's so interesting what Gabrielle spoke about because, of course, this reopening conversation, this pilot program conversation is happening against the backdrop of a national conversation about the need to bring tens of thousands of stranded Australian citizens back into the country, which is now beginning to occur. I asked Andrew Everett at Charles Darwin University, who has been at the tip of the spear, let's face it, he was the first one with a pilot program up and running. And I was curious to know what kind of media or community response he was getting. And despite some quibbles or some fractiousness to begin with, he's really quite happy about how this has all played out because after all, Darwin is a proudly multicultural city. Here's what Andrew told us. What really astounded me, to be honest with you, I was expecting quite a bit of heat from the community, but there's been nothing. There's been the odd letter to the editor and text to the editor, which is the usual people that find problems with everything and not solutions to anything. But there's just been silence. People I talk with um, regularly in different professions in the city, they're just saying, well, of course this has got to happen. Spend a little bit to make a lot. And accommodation providers are thrilled because there's been a lot of empty home units here in Darwin for years. Um, A colleague here had a two-bedroom unit that was empty for 12 months. He said he'd just take enough rent even just to cover the rates uh, and body corporate 
couldn't get a tenant at all. So, so this is important, and they they realise this. The, the the community realises how important it is uh, in terms of finance. Then on top of that, this is a very very I don't know how well you know Darwin, but it's a very very multicultural community, very much so. And I think that helps as well because people who have come from overseas either themselves or their parents or their grandparents get it. They understand it, you know. And and uh, indigenous people here have been dealing with with people from Indonesia for thousands of years. So I think at every level, it's it's been really welcomed. It's been it's just been this a lot of silence. There's been a lot of headlines in the in the NT news. Um, We've got the crocodile off the front page for a day or so, I think, which is a pleasant change. Yeah, I think Andrew's comments are really, really bring it home that this social licensing issue, it might sound soft, but it is vital. If you don't have the communities on board and the public sentiment, it can make it almost impossible for these kinds of programs to go ahead. And it sounds like he had a, a really positive experience at the end of the day. I mean, it takes a lot to get a croc off the front page of the Northern Territory <laughs> News, so that's pretty it amazing. That's, that's saying something, isn't it? And, and, you know, in the ACT, there was quite a different context here where with that pilot that we've spoken about in previous episodes of the podcast, we spoke about how the ACT pilot was cancelled due to the second wave of coronavirus down in Victoria. But actually, um, when we spoke to Lawrence, he said there's another reason as well, and that was public sentiment. And this is what Lawrence told us about that. The community sentiment was always something you know, that I mean, people refer to as a social license these days. The social license for us to do this was always something we were very, very focused on. And it was the reason we suspended our pilot when we did, because we were concerned that we would lose that social license. The Canberra community, of course, is a much more progressive community, generally speaking. It's the most educated population in Australia uh, as a proportion of the of the population and therefore tends to be more engaged in the uh, understanding these issues than some other parts of Australia. That means that the social license is probably easier to achieve here because people do listen to the arguments and they understand the benefits of international students and that we have seen the economic impacts of not having international students here in Canberra. One in eight people um, in the ACT work or study at one of the academic institutions in Canberra. So if you haven't, if you haven't got the international students here, you see the economic impact of that almost instantly. And we have, we have felt it in Canberra. And I think that the social license therefore will be there. The big issue is actually making sure that we communicate the safe way in which we will undertake bringing students back. And that then will give us a social license, I think. Yeah. And Sarah Todd at Griffith University, in a state that is one of Australia's largest draw cards of international tourists, drew some comparisons between the connections between the international education sector and the tourism sector, and perhaps the need for the two of them to better understand and talk to one another uh, more clearly about the benefits that each derive from the success of the other. Here's what Sarah had to say about international education and tourism. I think as a sector, we've had some champions, you know, in the AFR and in the Australian and in other places writing and saying this needs to happen and, and people who I wouldn't have associated with international education or the sector at all, but they're looking at it as Australia's economic recovery and you just have to go down the list of exports, you know, tourism's a bit challenging. International education offers some potential that, you know, not many tourists are going to come and quarantine for two weeks, but a student would be far more motivated and longer term. So 
I do think things that happen in the international education environment that see us with a secure and safe corridor pathway, whatever we want to call it, I would hope then there would be implications for other industries like tourism. So if we manage to bring international students in safely and in sort of a cost-effective manner, then what does that mean and does that open up opportunities for tourism? So if education goes first and then tourism, I think we should be talking with them about what could they learn and how can we work together in that space so that we see inbound travellers, not just tourists, not just students, but all inbound travel starting to return to Australia in some way. So I think there definitely is discussions there with people who you'd say, well, they're indirectly or directly affected or connected with the sector. Brisbane, it's a little bit harder to tell if I think about campuses there, but definitely on the Gold Coast, significant recognition that international education is a critical part of the city. Study Gold Coast, the Mayor's Office, the City Council, the airport, accommodation providers, you know, really pushing for a Gold Coast corridor and lots of discussion. I know in Cairns, they want a Cairns plan in place. So Queensland, the government um, requirements at the moment are that we only have one entry point into the state and that was designated as Brisbane. But that definitely hasn't stopped other communities with airports or otherwise putting up their hand. Even in some regional and rural parts of Queensland that you might have thought they'd be quite happy the way they were, you know, recognising actually international students add to their community. Maybe it's dentistry students and uh, at James Cook and now, you know, they're appointments aren't as freely available as what they were before because there's not those international students there to you know doing those placements and things so I think like most things sentiment will vary across different parts of Australia and depending on how connected Queensland with its state border closures there's people who think that's fantastic I would imagine they're pretty negative about international students well I know they're pretty negative about international students coming in they don't even want anyone from Sydney coming in so they definitely won't want them from Shanghai but there's there's others who are well aware that international education is an important part of the state. So I think any given day I could talk to people who are very positive and people who are very negative. You know, as we know, many people in the community have a stereotyped image of what an international student is and what they do. Um, and then they wouldn't have even thought about the person they interacted with being an international student. And suddenly when institutions are saying, well, we can't offer that service because our students aren't here, then suddenly or our budget's affected. So maybe it's not even something that an international student directly made available, but the university can't afford to do it anymore. And, you know, that's one of our discussions at Griffith is what do we stop, what do we reduce and what's what's in the nice to have or nice to do bucket and what's in the core bucket. And if you amplify those conversations right across the country, there will be a lot of communities who suddenly find that their local universities can't provide or engage in the same way that they could. So it's not just about international students directly. Um, it's more about what did international students enable that university to do in the wider community. One of the things that we always say is that one state's international student is another state's tourist because guess what? International students like to visit one another, don't they? Moving out of their home state jurisdiction where they're studying to go visit, you know, see the country, visit mates. Definitely. And I think we've all seen that this year is this recognition of a need for the sector to really connect itself more strongly with its messaging through to the role it plays within the tourism sector in Australia and the amount of jobs 
that international education generates in sectors such as retail and hospitality, accommodation and tourism generally. I think with the borders closed to international students, I think this connection has become very apparent. Yeah, and as we move towards the end of the academic year and the one of the big graduation seasons, we're not going to see the big influx of proud parents of international students flying to Australia to spend a week or two with their graduate. And graduates typically show off to mum and dad very proudly their university community, take them to their favourite tourist hotspots. Parents spend time in hotels, spend money in the economy. So we're, we're going to miss that this year. But it's something that we should keep at front of mind as we're having conversations with the business community, including the tourism sector. So let's talk a little bit more about sentiment in the business community, because as we keep on saying, the benefits of international education are felt right across the economy from retail to accommodation to tourism um, and hospitality. And again, going back to this theme of absence, in many ways, um, fewer international students here have brought home the impact that a thriving international education sector has in the economy. We like to talk about the human scale benefits of international education, something we call the haircut index. I mean, we've done quite a bit of work for clients actually right across the country talking about this concept of how do you engage properly with the business community to spell out at a sort of a microeconomic level the value that international students represent to businesses small, medium and large. And guess what? International students have hair and they need haircuts and they're temporary residents. So they're living within our communities, whether it's a big city or a regional city for several years. Each of those haircut events um, is happening within local hairdressers. Um, and I think that we really need to make sure we bring this conversation about the export dollars that are earned in international education down to that micro level. I asked Gabrielle Rowland at UniSA if she's noticed any change in sentiment towards international students in the business community because of their absence. And she has, and this is what she told us. Look, all you need to do is walk around our campuses have been reopened since July, but a large quantity of students aren't there uh, who would normally be there. I mean, we do have, you know, we have a lot of our, you know, domestic students and a lot of international students are there as well, but there's definitely a missing sort of group. So all you have to do is walk around to the businesses close within footfall to the university who are desperate for these students to return. It comes across all different sorts of businesses as well. So I think the business community probably recognises it much more so than just the general community about just the value that those students bring. And it's, you know, it's not just about what they're spending here. Our mosques, our churches, our football clubs, our soccer clubs, our gyms, it's all of those sorts of things that are returned for international students. They're missed. I think this has been one of those times this year where the business community have shown real support for the international education sector. And this has been really apparent right across the country. We heard from Simon Ridings about this in Perth, and he's been seeing huge support for international education in the local business community. This is what he said. I'm sure in WA, more generally in Perth, very specifically, there's a very good understanding that international students play a very constructive, important part in the local economy. Uh, we don't have concerns in the business community about uh, you know, international students and are there enough jobs. When, when we don't have the international students coming through, we, 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 we talk to partners and friends in the commercial world and they like us, they are missing the students. They are asking us, when will they be back? What can we do to help? Who do we need to talk to? 
we've had huge support from the local business community who, of course, for, for their own reasons too, many of them are very, very keen to see borders progressively reopened and to see travel recommence as, as soon as possibly can be the case. But, but all of them realise that you know, international students are critical for the, for the local economy as well and they're you know, looking for ways to help us tell the story and make the case that we need to do it as, as soon as is safe and practical. So, Angela, we've come to the end of episode three. It's probably worthwhile just reflecting very briefly on what we've covered in episodes one to three, which really are a kind of a, a series, aren't they, about pilot programs. But ultimately, the headline is that Australia needs a national reopening plan. We need to give students, international students, certainty, whether they're current students studying offshore or they're commencing students or prospective students planning their studies. Because right now, Commencing students are looking at Australia and wondering, is this place ever going to open? When will the borders open? Oh, I've heard that Canada's opening. I've heard that the US even, they'll open. Uh, the UK is open. So it's really time that we seized this moment to make sure that we're competitive on the other side. I absolutely agree, Geoffrey. And I think what's interesting about this issue, this need for a national approach, has come through from both our conversations within the sector, but it's also come through very strongly from our conversations with students. We recently released a short video of insight from students about what they know about border opening and what information they're receiving. And it was quite concerning. There's real confusion and a real need for, for clarity and consistency. Yeah, absolutely. So in episode four, we're going to take a slightly different tack. We're speaking to Rebecca Hall, who everyone knows and loves for the contribution she's made over two decades to international education in this country. In our conversation with Rebecca, we reflect briefly on her time at Austrade through the pandemic months and her pride as she's witnessed the sector really pull together to come up with a solution for international education in this country. But then we move on to talk about her new role as Commissioner for Victoria to Southeast Asia and the role that Southeast Asia will play as a building block in our recovery in international education in this country. So you can subscribe to The Source Pod wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for The Ligon Group. You can follow The Ligon Group on LinkedIn and Twitter, or you can visit us at theligongroup.com. Thanks for listening. See you, Ange. See you, Jeffrey.